in accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. The thing I would say is make that transition realize you are not in the Army. It's a completely different world. So understand your new surroundings. Understand that everyone has a lot more freedom than what you've had. And there is no right rule that you can point to to get a resolution to something because you're just not in the military anymore. It's a completely different world. Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for Life in Accounting, a podcast production of Where Accountants Go. That clip was from Roderick Robeson, another guest from the Austin, Texas area. I'm not 100% sure, but I think Roderick may be our first guest that started their working career in the military and then afterwards moved into accounting. He's got a great story. As you're going to hear, Roderick is definitely not a status quo kind of individual, and he also definitely has an entrepreneurial streak. After serving in the Army, he got his degree in finance, actually, but then, after getting some practical experience in accounting, he decided that he wanted to go forward and get his CPA. You'll have to listen to the audio for the full details, but suffice it to say, this is a good story of how to find what you truly enjoy and are passionate about, and then how to build a career around that from there. If you enjoyed this episode, please visit us at whereaccountantsgo.com to subscribe to the podcast, or of course you can do so through your favorite podcast app. At that website, we also have a job board for the Texas area and links to all the prevalent certifications in the accounting world. That site, once again, is www.whereaccountantsgo.com. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Here's Roderick Robeson in the Austin, Texas area. Hello, Roderick. Thank you so much for being willing to share your career with the audience today. No problem. It's my pleasure. Wonderful. Well, for the audience, we have Roderick Robeson from Austin, Texas on the line today. Roderick was referred to us actually by one of our former guests, Sarah Elliott. He's former military, and he's built up his post-service career in the accounting field, of course, and he has some unique ways of running his practice now, which I definitely want to get into, particularly for those in the audience that may be thinking about pursuing the client service side of our industry or our business. Before we get into your current situation, though, Roderick, I always like to start at the beginning so people get the full story and understand how you got to where you are today. What initially caused you to think that accounting might be a good career to pursue in the first place? Well, it's kind of interesting. When I graduated from Baylor University, and this was after having served four years in the military, a friend of mine asked me to help their tax attorney prepare their tax return. So this was during the you know, the dot-com era and everybody was making money hand over fist. And these partners were kind of in that same group. They were making decent money and they didn't really do anything from an accounting perspective. They just kind of ran out and they got sales and they needed someone who could talk the accounting language to their tax attorney. And a finance professor had told me 
if I wanted to be a good stockbroker, then to take my electives and take accounting for those electives. Don't take business management or whatever. Take as many accounting courses as I could. And that served me well when I was helping this company to talk to their tax attorney because I started looking at what they were doing and they were calling their, you know, their accounts receivables, their accounts payables and the financial statements just, I mean, they were just horrible. They weren't financial statements, to be perfectly honest. And so I just went in and just cleaned all that stuff up and kind of gave them some advice on what they could do to make it look better and kind of how to run their company a little better. But my goal was to, you know, kind of take some of that money while I was sitting for the Series 7 exam. And I think their tax attorney prompted them to hire me to be the controller. Because before we got to the end of tax season, they made me an offer to be a controller of the company. And this is just right out of college. And that was kind of my first touch with accounting in a real kind of way, being the controller of this startup web firm. Wow. So, you know, you should be sending that professor a Christmas gift or something every year. (laughs) (laughs) That worked out pretty well. It did. And so I think I've bought a couple of stocks here and there, but obviously that's not my profession. I enjoy accounting and it was a good decision and and a good turn, so to speak. Okay. So just to clarify, you had a finance degree actually at that point, but just with a lot of extra accounting added in. Yeah, I did. Finance was, to me, that was kind of the way to go, but accounting turned out to be a lot more fun. At least it has been for the entire ride. Interesting. Okay. So how long were you with the startup in that controller? It was for about two years, I think. So I went in and they gave me free reign to do whatever I wanted. They were out you know, in California, you know, talking to companies like Technicolor and working with Dell, and they didn't want to worry about the accounting piece. So they said, hey, look, we hired you, and they pay me pretty well. And they said, take care of it. We'll meet once a week, once a month, do whatever. And so for about two years, that was my first touch with QuickBooks as well. So I said, well, QuickBooks is going to be a way for us to put our accounting in place. It would be easy to kind of book the transactions because I wasn't an accountant. I was pulling off of my intermediate accounting classes to try to figure out how to post things. So QuickBooks was a way to kind of cheat in my mind because I thought I was cheating, (laughs) not booking journal entries. But then what that allowed me to do, and I didn't realize what I was doing at the time, was develop internal controls with this company. So right around the two-year mark, there wasn't really much for me to do. You know, I had helped. We were originally in downtown Austin in an 800-square-foot office space, the three of us. At the two-year mark, I'd help negotiate a lease. And actually, the building we stayed in is around the corner from my current office in downtown Austin. And we had about 2,400 square feet. They had about three employees at the time. And there wasn't much else for me to do from my perspective. I had built these processes, and they could have just dropped anyone in. And I kind of saw the writing on the wall. It was like, oh, this whole dot-com thing is about to explode. And I don't know what's going to happen to the company So I just kind of told him, I said, hey, I'm not adding much more value, I don't think, for you guys. You can drop staff account in here and pay them less than what you're paying me. Or you can do it yourselves if you really want to be involved. Because we did a, we actually did like classes. I was kind of teaching them things over that two-year period. And so I just took about a year off and kind of, you know, explored my options. And they kind of went on their way and, and did what they did. You know, incidentally enough, three months later, it all kind of fell apart. <laughs> the wow. whole dot-com thing started to collapse at that point. And then I was, I'd found a nonprofit organization. At the time, it was called Austin CDC. It's now People Fund. 
And what I was doing there was helping the thing that I love to do, which is what I do now, is providing consulting services to small business owners, helping them grow and understand, you know, the language of business, you know, how to grow your company. So with this nonprofit, what I was doing was helping small businesses in the community where my dad had his business to kind of grow their business. And what I saw was, and here's that next turn in my kind of in my journey, what I saw was there were a lot of CPAs doing things on tax returns and they were getting paid a decent amount of money, but the value they were providing, I'm just like, I could do this and I'm not a CPA, but I could easily do this. And so I tried to go out on my own and I picked up a couple of clients. But then when I started trying to raise my rates to what I thought were fair rates, I would get the same objection. Well, you're not a CPA. How do you justify charging that much? And I didn't have a good answer at the time, you know. So I said, well, you know what? Why don't I just get the CPA? What do I need to do to become a CPA? And I looked up the rules at the time. I think I needed 30, 30 more hours. And I decided to go back to college. But I, I looked at, you know, the top tier schools, UT and A&M. But the problem for me with those schools was not the quality of the education. At the time, they were a lockstep program. So you were going to be there for two years, regardless of how fast you wanted to go through the program. And that was pretty consistent. So I was looking for a way to start my business as fast as possible. And Texas State had a Macy program. And I called, actually called the accounting chair at that time and kind of explained what I wanted to do. And did I have the flexibility to kind of make my own program, so to speak, and get out as fast as I wanted? They said, yes, I applied, got in, and the rest is kind of history for there. I went down and, you know, I got the master's in accountancy and eventually sat for the CPA exam. Beautiful. Okay. Okay. That's a wild ride there. Started as a controller, went back to become a CPA. It's amazing. Well, what was your first, I guess, accounting job after... After your second set <laughs> of, uh, of school, well, your second session. Yeah, so the first accounting job was at Price Waterhouse Coopers. Okay. And when I was in graduate school at Texas State, what I was going to do was immediately start my practice. But the auditing professor, Dr. Flaherty, I will never forget him, he was prior service as well. He would badger me about working for the big four. You know, because I told him I was interested in starting my own practice and it just became a routine for us. I'd come to class on the day and he's like, have you applied? Have you applied? Have you applied? I'm just like, I'm not applying. I'm going to do my own thing. And eventually I, I just said, you know what? If I apply, I'm not going to accept anything and I'm probably not going to get the job. But if I apply, will you leave me alone finally? He goes, yes, that's all I want. And so I applied for all four and, you know, told him, here you go. I applied for all four and I worked really hard and in graduate school and got really great grades and had the option to kind of work for any of the big four at that point. But Sarah is the person I first got in contact with at PWC, and she kind of told me about the culture at PricewaterhouseCoopers. And then Ray Garcia was a partner who interviewed me, and he kind of reaffirmed what Sarah had told me. And I picked PWC for the culture there. I felt like my personality kind of meshed and I thought it would be a good learning opportunity because those are all the things Dr. Flaherty had mentioned why I needed to do that if I was going to start my own practice. And that's some advice I would give to any young person or anyone that's kind of changing careers and deciding and they have the opportunity to work for the big four. If you have the opportunity to pick more than one, try to figure out what the culture is at that particular firm because all of the firms, the big four, are great learning experiences. You're going to learn a lot. You're going to have great experiences. But your personality needs to kind of mesh 
with the personalities of the people that are there. And you can find some of that stuff out before you actually work there when you go through the interview process. Don't look at it like, I need this job. If they're interviewing you, they need you as much as you need them. So just use it that way. Use that opportunity to kind of fill everyone out and kind of understand what the culture is for that practice. And so I got the offer. And then, I mean, right after that, I worked at PwC for about two years. And one of the benefits of working big four was, and I use these tools in my practice now, they kind of gave me the nuts and bolts of accounting for documentation, evidencing, you know, work papers. There's just just no way I would have known how to do any of that had I not gone to the big four. I would have had to figure out on my own. And when I got started, that was nothing I really had to worry about. I knew how to develop work papers. I knew how to tie out and support the financial statements. You know, I, I got great interview skills at PwC because I had to talk to people that were at higher level than me, you know, and, and even having gone through the military, that was still a good experience. And it helps me when I go to sell, when I talk to people and I talk to business owners. So that was a great experience. I don't regret it at all. I just knew, though, that that wasn't a career for me to kind of work in public accounting for the rest of my life. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I've heard the same thing from individuals that have worked in industry and then purchase a book of business or a practice and start their own practice that way or even start with clients on the side, but they never worked in another public accounting firm. And I've heard the same thing from employers hiring people that had never worked in public. It's just, you know, they get the work done, obviously, and the client is serviced well, but frequently there's a realization later that they they need to tighten up on their documentation and work papers, you know, practices. That's interesting you say that very much. Take us through, I guess, because I know you have your own practice now. Take us through everything in the middle. So what happened after PwC? What are some of the highlights from there to the present time? Yeah. So again, I like to serve. So I felt like and I had been convinced that in auditing, I'd be able to kind of serve. But that's really more of an adversarial relationship than it is a consultative type relationship. And so I got hired away by ConocoPhillips. And the recruiter from ConocoPhillips convinced me that internal audit was more consultative. And it was. And I don't regret that because now <laughs> so we take the documentation piece of public accounting and now I take the operational piece of how a business is actually run from ConocoPhillips. I've merged those two things, and they're now a part of my business. And so I enjoyed that experience as well. But what happened at ConocoPhillips was this was about the downturn of the oil and gas market, and they wanted to ship me from Houston to Bartlesville, Oklahoma, and that wasn't going to work for me. And I was ready to kind of leave anyway and kind of start my own thing. So I started teaching at Texas State with the goal of having the free time that I would have as a lecturer to build my practice. Well, another turn happens and I got married and I kind of put the business on hold and there were some things that kind of happened. My wife always says, you know, you overshare. Try not to overshare when you're interviewed in the future. So there were some things that happened that kind of prevented (laughs) us, prevented me from launching my business when I wanted. So I went back into internal audit and worked at a company called Eagle Rock Energy. And that was the last time I worked for someone. And I remember the day clearly in my mind when I made the decision and why I made the decision. On March 4th, 2014, I was sitting in front of the executive board and the audit committee. So the CFO, the CEO, and what have you are there. And we did a bunch of great work to help 
the internal processes within the company. We gave an excellent presentation on kind of our findings and how this would help the company. And when we were done, one of the audit committee members paused and kind of looked at us and said, now, who are y'all again? And what is it that you do for our company? And at that point, it took everything within me to not be (laughs) very angry. And I said, you know, I'm done with this. I've kind of floated around. I've had a good experience. And I talked to my wife and I said, this is the last company I'm ever working for. And I'm going to go out and start picking up clients. And I had a plan to kind of how I was going to build the practice. And on March 5th, 2015, that was the day I launched and never looked back. And within, and there was a concern that I wouldn't be able to pick up clients. So I kind of ditched the plan to go get the revenue because when you're married and your spouse is very risk averse, I have a very low risk tolerance. I love to take risks. You got to balance that out. So I had to show her I could generate revenue. And so I went out and got clients. It took me about three months to get the first client. But within a month or two of getting the first client, and this was with very little marketing, I ended up generating enough revenue to offset the loss of revenue from my salary. Within a year, I was right at the same level. I mean, I basically was making the same amount of money I was making when I was in corporate America. And I've just never looked back since then. Wow, that is impressive. Sometimes it takes people much longer. I don't want you to give away your trade secrets, but how did you get the first couple clients? Is there anything you could share there? You know, I think it's my, it's kind of my foundational principles. Every time I get a client, I look at it like my dad had his own business and I say, how would I serve my dad? That's really how I look at it. So every client I get, I try to treat them as if they are the only client that I have and I work really, really hard. And if I misquoted the price and I should have raised the price, it doesn't matter. I'm going to treat them as if they pay me whatever the market rate was. And that's really all I did. So I asked family and friends. I said, hey, I'm about to go. I'm going out on my own. I need to pick up clients. And the first client I got was a restaurant in Sugarland, And I just served them the best that I could. They told someone else. And then I picked that client up. I just treated them like they were the only client that I had. And then they told somebody else. You know, And I did a couple of things on there's a site called Thumbtack. I picked up three or four clients off of that site. But I just took every client and said, I'm going to serve them to the utmost. They're going to get whatever they pay me. They're going to get their money's worth of what they pay me. And that's how I grow now. I don't really market. If you look at my website, there's nothing special about it. I don't use SEO or anything like that. I just treat every client as if they're my dad. That's just been my basic philosophy. And it, it's just been growing. I just get it's just word of mouth referrals at this point. That's how I grew. I wasn't going to ask this. I thought about it earlier, but but now that you've mentioned your father twice and that he had a business, I think that might be an important part of the story. What kind of business did your father have? Well, fixed TVs and radios. He was one of the first African-American entrepreneurs in East Austin, and he wanted me to kind of take over in his shoes for his business. And I learned a lot about serving clients, watching him every Saturday. He would take me there. And sometimes he'd pull me out of school to kind of see what the business was like. And what I kind of took from that experience that I've tried to implement in my business is that he for he only had a 10th grade education. So he did a lot, you know, with the little education that he had. 
But as long as he was working, there was money coming in. But if he wasn't working, then there was no money coming in. So I said, oh, aha, that's something I need to kind of make sure that if I ever do my own thing, I got to figure out a way for the revenue to come in, whether I'm working or not working. And that's kind of what I've learned as an internal auditor from ConocoPhillips is how to put those processes in place in your business so that whether you're working or not, there's work that's getting done. Now, don't get me wrong. I work a lot. I work several hours, you know, but I've been able to do, I mean, I've been a one man shop since I've started. I just hired my first employee and I have about 60 recurring clients and I'll service as many as 100 to 150 clients a year, you know, tax season and projects here and there. But I was able to do a lot of that stuff on my own because of the process part I learned in internal audit. And so, yes, he's been a, he is an inspiration to me. He's been a hero, you know, to me, of course, but he's planted the entrepreneurial seeds, even when I didn't know that that was germinating and growing in the back of my mind. Sounds like you got your customer service attitude from him as well, just serving the customer attitude from him as well. Sounds like that probably rubbed off. Yep. That's good. So tell us about your practice now. Is it primarily tax? Or you mentioned something about some projects in there. So the way I started it, so my thought had always been, I looked at the traditional accounting model, which is a billable hour model. And I said, okay, this is not a way that I want to go. And I said, I don't want to be the person that my clients see at the end of the year or in January and February. I want to make sure that I'm touching my clients every month because I want to be a part of their business and help them grow. So my practice has always been, you know, it started out with the concept was to be kind of a concierge accountant. And I worry about fit more than I do industry. Now, of course, there's industries I avoid, you know, construction. I'm not going to pursue a construction company, Uh, companies that have a lot of inventory, that type of accounting. I don't want to deal with that. I really don't like job costing. However, if the customer is a good fit personality wise, we can work together and they see me as a trusted partner, then I design the pricing and I design the projects around whatever that particular client's needs are. And so, of course, in this small business world, tax is kind of how you get in the door because that's what small businesses think about. How do I minimize my taxes? But once I get in and have that conversation about the taxes and how I can save the money, then that opens the door for another conversation. You know, now I pull in my PwC and internal audit and talking about efficiencies. I'll ask a client, are you working all the time? You feel like you never have time off. Yeah, I'm always working. Well, we can put some processes in place so that you don't have to work all the time. There may be some things we can automate within your business so that an app is doing that as opposed to you doing that. You know, Or maybe we need to outsource a service and you'll have more time to go sell some of your higher profit services or products as opposed to being in the weeds doing the work. And it's like, what's your time worth? So that's really how my practice works. I start off an introduction to a client is through taxes because that's what small businesses look for in a CPA. And then once I understood their business and they become a client and I become a trusted advisor, then we start to scale up. And so I'd say most of my clients, I'd say 85 to 90 percent are recurring clients where I do the bookkeeping and the taxes. And then I'm a consultant to them, a business advisor. And then the rest could be someone calls me and says, hey, I need a cash flow model or I need some help getting some financing, you know, just whatever project that comes along. But really, the meat of my clients are recurring clients where I'm a part-time controller, CFO, 
slash business advisor to them. Okay. You know, when you went full-time into your practice, I guess, what were some of the challenges or what were some of the things that surprised you that you weren't expecting? Wow. What are some of the things that surprised me? Here's an interesting thing. I had a client who was married. I did not know they were married. And they had been married for two years. (laughs) And I didn't find out that they were married until the spouse emailed me and said, hey, we were told that if we filed jointly, we would be able to save money. I don't believe that. And I'm like, I have no idea who you are. What in the world? Who are you? And then the spouse contacted me and said, yeah. Now, they're common law married. So there wasn't a certificate or anything, but they have presented themselves as married in the state of Texas. So getting information from your clients that you would think is easy to get, that has been a challenge. It's making sure you get all of the information from those clients, getting them to be transparent about different things. You'd be surprised what clients hide, but I'm also surprised at what they do tell me because there's a lot of things they tell me that I'm like, I don't want to know that. You probably shouldn't tell me that. You should keep those things to yourself. That's kind of part of being a trusted advisor. Another challenge had been trying to figure out how to hire people or when to hire people. I thought it would be a lot easier than it was to hire people, but it it was hard to find someone that kind of fit. So that's kind of the thing I'm working on now is figuring out a model of how to select a good team member. That's a skill that I didn't have because I had not been in a management position in any of the other jobs that I had. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you got to figure the client that you didn't know was married. They had to know that they were not telling you the full story and they, they just thought they were going to save some money on taxes or something. I mean, how do you not know that that's important? That's Wow, that's amazing. And it is. And I would say, though, this, you would be surprised, though, and I've had to try to reprogram my mind because we're accountants. So for us, some things are just second nature. And a lot of our clients are very afraid of the whole tax thing. And so one of the things I've done as part of evaluating my clients is I've taken that into consideration. Actually, part of my strategic planning is I've mapped out what's called a client journey map. And anyone can do this. You can Google client journey map. And I analyzed. So over the last three months, I went back and analyzed all of the sales calls or sales interviews that I've done. And, you know, and I worked with the guy actually who was the web designer. He's still a good friend of mine and he's a strategic planner with IBM. We sat down and we analyzed all of the sales interviews that I performed. And we looked at different conversations that I've had with my clients. And we created this map of the profile of a business owner and how they perceive CPAs in that fear. And that lack of knowledge is one of the things that's a roadblock to picking up a client. And so I go in now with the mindset that they just don't know. They don't know what they don't know. And they're intimidated by this whole tax process. And a lot of our clients are intimidated by us because we're the CPA. And, you know, I have clients that call me about things and I say, well, you don't need my permission to go buy something. It's your business. So we have a pretty big responsibility to our clients because they perceive us in ways that we don't necessarily look at it because we're, we're CPAs. We're in the weeds and we do this all the time. So I wanted to make sure when I did that analysis that I said, let me look at how I interact with my clients from my client's perspective, not just my perspective. And so I'm mindful of what all my clients know and don't know. Just had a conversation with a locksmith company 
And they had no idea what they were able to deduct, whether they weren't supposed to deduct anything. And so instead of just filing or trying to contact someone to help them, they just didn't file at all. They just said, we just didn't file any taxes because we didn't know what to do. And we were afraid. And now we're making money and we're more afraid. And we got your name from a friend of ours that said, you are a really great CPA. We need your help. So you'd be surprised at what your clients know and don't know. And you don't know that until you start having those conversations and you dig in and you actually get to know those clients. And once you become that trusted advisor, they tell you at that point, they start telling you everything. You know, once they can trust you and they know that you're on their side. And I tell people, I tell other CPAs, the switching cost for a good CPA to a client is very high. So you have a lot of room and a lot of grace to kind of make mistakes. Don't take advantage of that. Use that to your advantage because being an honored consultant, which is what a respectable consultant, an honorable consultant, which is really kind of what the practice was built on from what I've learned from graduate school, the accounting practice. So I take that to heart. So, you know, give your clients a little slack. You know that because you're trained, but they don't know. They only know what they know. They're locksmiths, they're realtors, they're mechanics, they're whatever they are. They don't know what we know, so cut them a little slack. Interesting. So tell us about the future of your practice. What does success look like? What's your vision for the next few years? My vision is to automate a lot more than I'm automating now. The concierge model for me, I think, works if I want to stay at the level I'm now. If I don't do anything differently, I'm going to live a pretty happy life and I'll you know, make a good living but I'd like to grow a little bit more in the way for me to grow is going to be to add staff. So I need to put more processes in place. I need to document more. I need to automate more and more. So that's where I am now. I'm in the middle of finishing up a strategic plan. It's a three to five year strategic plan to kind of ramp up. And I may be adding staff or I may be merging. I've talked to a couple of other accounting firms and bookkeeping firms. So I may be merging if the culture of those firms kind of match what I want as a culture, then I'll merge. If not, then I'll start hiring tax professionals and bookkeepers and I'll train them myself and then we'll kind of grow that way. So standardizing pricing, standardizing all the processes, less customization, that's kind of the future for me. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm curious because you mentioned being paperless to me in the scheduling conversation. Now we're talking about automation. What systems do you use in your practice or with your clients? I use Citrix ShareFile for all of the documents, for document retention, because it has bank encryption. Interesting story regarding document management. I was using Dropbox at one point, and I had a client in Houston. They were multi-million dollar, potentially, they weren't a client. I take that back. They were a potentially multi-million dollar client. And they saved all of their information on Dropbox with the link that I gave them. And I kept waiting for them to respond to me. And they said they saved the documents there, but neither one of us could ever find those documents. And Dropbox wouldn't let me call them because I didn't have a specific type of service. And I, to this day, we don't know where those documents are. So I moved to Citrix ShareFile because they had customer service and they had bank level encryption, and it integrates with DocuSign, which is the platform, e-signing platform that I use. And it allows my clients to log in and get whatever information they need. And I can get notices whenever something 
is added to the folders. And if I need any customer support, I can actually physically call someone and say, hey, what's going on? Help me to find this. And then I make QuickBooks Online a shop exclusively. I don't use Zero or desktop. And the reason why I have refused to use multiple platforms is because that throws off my process. So now I have to create a whole new process for desktop or zero. So everything needs to be streamlined and automated, you know, to down to my chart of accounts. That chart of accounts is pretty much standardized for all of my clients. So QuickBooks Online is one platform. Citrus ShareFile for document management. HubDoc is an application I use to pull bank statements because clients want to give me their login information and I just don't want their login information. And that'll help me pull the statements and the checks. And those are basically the platforms that I use. Microsoft 365, I forgot about that one. Okay, thank you. Figured may as well ask about that as well. So if you take on a client that's on the desktop version of QuickBooks, you're moving them to QBO? Yep. I tell them, I say, hey, I would love to work with you, but if you want to work with me, you have to come off of desktop. There you go. Okay. Well, I've got some final questions I end every podcast with, but there's one more thing I want to ask about, and I'm going back a ways here, but it wasn't long ago I was speaking to a student about their career, and the individual is former military, and so we were talking about, you know, the options and, you know, what he wanted to do with his career and that kind of thing, and it was interesting. I told him, you know, if I were you, I think, you know, there are many things you could do, but I think one of the things I would do is find some individuals like yourself, but that are further along, that are former military and have built their accounting careers and talk to them. You know, maybe I'll share some things in common. And he asked me, do you know anybody like that? And I started thinking, you know, I'm not sure I know too many. And then here, you know, it's only a couple months later and I'm talking to you on the phone. Is there anything that you feel, anything you can put your finger on that helped you transition, you know, into the commercial world or specifically accounting, anything you think you did well that helped that work out smoother? You know, I don't. (laughs) And here's why. And this is what the advice I would give to anyone whose prior service that's transitioning. It was a hard transition for me. And the reason why it was a hard transition for me is there was so much order and equality in the Army. And some people may have had a different experience, but that's just the experience I had. There was some issue, regardless. There was a regulation. There was a procedure. There was some rule in place that I could go to and I could refer to that. And that regulation, specifically the Army regulations, that kind of outranked everything. So there wasn't, you know, even though there was politics, when politics reared its head, I learned, and I learned this from my dad, I could go to the Army regulations and I can say, this is what the regs say. So it doesn't matter if you're a colonel, sergeant, general, whatever. The regulations are what's going to dictate how this ultimately ends up. And that had been my experience. You know, I mean, there's a regulation I still remember. 670-1 is a military wear and apparel. And I was in formation in a parade. And I was giving comments from a colonel about how my dress looked. And very respectfully, I told him 670-1. And I cited the regulation. I said, this is what that regulation says. And his response was, well done. I stand corrected. He went on his way. And so it's hard to make that transition because you go from complete order in a way to get answers resolved and everything is green to disorder (laughs) is how I felt. You know, and you would go into a situation and think, wow, this is how it's supposed to be. But it's different in the civilian world. There is no regulation all the time that you can point to. Even going to HR 
well, there's still going to be some politics there working through HR. And you can cite the rules, but in order to get something resolved quickly, that may mean litigation. That may mean multiple counseling sessions. I didn't have that experience in the military. So it was very hard to make that transition because my mindset coming out was, well, this is how it's supposed to be done, right? And if that's how it's supposed to be done, you could point everyone to how it's supposed to be done and everyone would kind of fall in line. That's not the case in the civilian world. So it was a very hard transition for me. And it took me a while to kind of disconnect from that military training in that regard. So what I would have done differently coming out is I would have taken my time to start engaging people. I would have stopped and thought about the entire situation and say, hey, I'm not in the army anymore. So let's analyze what's going on in this particular situation. Let's hear what everyone else has to say. And then let me figure out from hearing everything, a different approach than what the military approach is. Because I even remember being in organizations and things weren't going well on a project and I would just kind of take over and dominate. And sometimes that was great because people wanted direction. And sometimes it was very disruptive because people would be thinking, well, who are you and why is it, you know, so it's, you have to learn. The thing I would say is when you make that transition, realize you are not in the army anymore. It's a completely different world. So understand your new surroundings. Understand that everyone has a lot more freedom than what you've had. And there is no right rule that you can point to to get a resolution to something because you're just not in the military anymore. It's a completely different world. Well, thank you. I think that's good advice and good feedback. And I haven't been in that world. So, yeah, thank you very much. I do conclude every podcast with the same three questions. I think it gives us some good consistency. The first one is... Career-wise, what has been your proudest moment? Well, we'll stick with accounting for now. And the first employee I hired, we did our first counseling session. And the feedback he gave me was the feedback that I had always wanted to be able to give to a manager of mine, which was, if I ever needed anything, you were available. You gave me all the resources I ever needed. And I've learned more in my short time with you than I've learned in, from any of the other jobs that I've had. So I was very proud to say that, you know, I am being the type of manager that I've always wanted to serve under. And so I was very proud when I got that feedback from my employee. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) That does make you feel good. (laughs) Well, tell us about a mistake you've made and what you learned from it, because that's where the gold is, of course. But frankly, the bigger, the better. We like it when people share the big mistakes. (laughs) Okay. So it was my second tax return, and I had not implemented all of the processes that I've implemented now. I was in a rush to get the work done, and I hadn't followed my own advice, which is there's a way to document, there's a way to support all the things that I learned at PwC. And this mistake snapped me back to it, and I didn't learn about it until 2016. But the client had given me two 1099s, and the way they gave it to me, it looked like it was just one. So we underreported her revenue. And I thought, oh, you know, that wasn't my fault. I'm XPWC, right? We don't make these types of mistakes. Then I found it, and I saw it was my mistake. She gave me all the documentation. Somehow I just missed it. And I went back and checked what I did, and I said, you know what? I had not been following the processes that I established. So I went back and documented all of my processes. And then I said, I'm only going to follow my processes. We're not going to break these processes because these processes will protect me. So once I realized that the mistake was mine, we had a conversation and I told her the taxes that are due 
those taxes are yours because this is the revenue that you earned. But these penalties and interest, those are mine. I'm going to pay for those. And I wrote her a check on the spot for the penalties and interest and gave it to her and apologized for making that mistake. And I owned up to the mistake. I said, we're going to, this is all fixed now. And then I explained to her what my new process was and why that would never be a problem again. And she's still a client. She refers me a lot of business to this day. And so that was a very painful lesson, but it taught me those processes are very important because they protect you from making mistakes. That is good advice. That is good advice. It's interesting. You start in business and you don't have too many processes and you realize you need them, so you put them in place. It's interesting when we, because I've done this at least, we come full circle to stop, we stop following our own processes, you know, that we created in the first place. Yeah. (laughs) And you have to be reminded, sadly. Well, you did the right thing and that's what's important. Definitely. Yep. I'm religious about following processes now. (laughs) That was the lesson learned. (laughs) Well, final question, and then we'll close it down. What is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? The best piece of advice that I've received, I'll say recently, from a gentleman named Troy Knowles. He's one of the first entrepreneurs um, I ran into when I was starting my practice. And what he told me was, when you get new information, implement it immediately in some capacity. Don't take a class and then put the information on a shelf and say, I'm eventually going to get back to it. Take some of that information and start implementing it immediately because that's going to give you the best change within your company in order to grow or it's going to eliminate something that you don't need to use anymore. And a lot of times, he says, a lot of times we have the answers to our questions sitting on a shelf somewhere, on a file somewhere of some class or some book, some webinar we took, and we just never use that information. And then we wonder why. You know, we keep making these mistakes or we're not growing. So as soon as you get some new information, try to find some kind of way to implement it to see if it's good for you or to just eliminate it as something that's you know not important or pertinent to your business. Well, that is good advice, Tim. Thank you very much. Well, for our audience, this has been Life in Accounting, a podcast production of whereaccountsgo.com. If you haven't yet visited the website, please do so. Of course, we're in the show notes for this, along with every other episode in the last year and a half. We also have links to all the accounting certifications, plus we have affiliate arrangements with some of the review courses that you may want to look into, and we have a job board for the South Texas area that you may want to check into as well. Once again, that's whereaccountantsgo.com. On that note, Roderick, are there any final words of wisdom you'd like to leave with the audience? Yeah, my parents have always told me just do the best you can and treat people the way you want to be treated, and that will give you as much success as you desire. And so I think I'm proof of that, and that's what I would do. There you go. Well said. Well, thank you to the audience for joining us. We will see everyone next week. There's more to come.